Our good Father, we ask that your word given to us would be a lamp unto our feet, that it would be a light to our path, that by it we would see Jesus so uh, clearly and beautifully, and that by him uh, we might be changed. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So in 1974, there were two brothers who were kidnapped while they were driving through the suburbs of Argentina. And they weren't just any brothers. They were actually high level executives of one of the most prominent multinational corporations in all of South America. And on top of that, they were also heirs of one of the greatest fortunes in all of Argentina. And in order to secure their release, the kidnappers demanded that a ransom be paid. The ransom is going to be this price that is paid in order to bring these brothers home. And the amount that was paid was the highest amount paid for ransom in the history of the world. In today's dollars, this ransom is around $300 million. Now, I know that my family loves me very much, and I know that you all love me very much. But if I am kidnapped, I do not think that my ransomers are getting $300 million for this life. Now, this is close to what the Bible talks about when it talks about redemption. There's somebody who looked at the situation of these brothers and said, in order to get you out of that situation that you are in and bring you home where you belong, I am willing, we are willing to pay an extraordinary price. The, the process of redemption throughout the Bible and in the culture at this time covered a variety of activities, but there are two common themes that are always found in this concept of redemption. The first is redemption involves the, the movement or transition out of something and into something. Typically out of something that is bad and undesirable and transferred into something good and that is rich and that is life-giving. That's the first part. There is a movement to redemption. The second is that there is someone who is willing to pay a price in order for this transition to happen, a cost, a, a transaction of some sort. So that's redemption. There's movement that comes at a price. And up to this point, as we've been looking at the cross over the past few weeks, we've seen the power of the cross to reveal the power of the cross to reconcile, the power of the cross to conquer, the power of the cross to free. And this morning, we are going to be considering the redeeming power of the cross. That is the cross's power to bring us out of something and into something. And, and the power of the cross to pay a price to make that happen, a price that we could not pay on our own. And so here's where I, what I want us to see this morning. We're going to be focusing on these three aspects. The first part is going to be this movement. The second is going to be the cost. And the third is going to be what it means for us here and now. So the movement, the cost, what it means for us. So first, this movement of what are we being brought out of and what are we being brought into? So in the ancient myth, Sisyphus was the king of the city of Corinth. And his betrayal of Zeus landed him in some very 
hot water. Because of his betrayal and his rejection and resistance of the gods, his fate was not imprisonment, but he was placed at the bottom of a hill where his task was to push a giant boulder up this hill to the very top. The only trouble is the gods had enchanted this boulder so that it would never reach the top. When it got to the top, near the top, it would just simply roll back down. And so his fate, as legend goes, is him for all eternity pushing this rock up a hill only to find it roll back down and he travels back down with it to push it back up. And that story has been told over the centuries as this picture of futility, of doing a task that never ends up accomplishing what you hope. When Peter describes what we have been brought out of, he does in his letter talk about us being brought out of things like darkness and things like death. But here in our passage, he highlights something very strange. When he talks about where we've been, he doesn't just say it's bad or um, it's evil, but he says it was futile. Verse 18, he talks about us being delivered from the futile ways of life that have been passed down to us as humanity runs its course. The the Greek word there behind futile communicates an emptiness, a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose, a a dead endness to life of of kind of like a, a castle in the sand that you build with the hopes that it will last only to have the ocean waves come and bring it crashing again. And Peter's saying the cross somehow has delivered you from this futility, that humanity that we were created for meaning. We were created for purpose. We were created for joy. We were created for life. And yet we find ourselves pursuing it in all of the wrong ways. Think about Psalm 1. And two pictures that are given there, if you remember. One picture is that of a tree. A tree that is planted by water. A tree that is stable, that is secure, that is enduring, that is bearing fruit in all types of seasons. That is a picture of fruitfulness in life. And he compares it to the picture of chaff, which grain was gathered. It would have been ground and they would have tossed it up so that the wind would blow away the extra shell and it would, just, it would just be gone, literally gone with the wind. And the psalm is saying, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be like this enduring and fruitful and life-giving tree? Or do you want to be this chaff, which in many ways is the picture of futility? And Peter's saying, God has rescued you from this to bring you into this. He gives some other different pictures, like in 1 Peter 2. He says, you are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have Received mercy. First Peter 1, according to his great mercy, causes to be born again to this living hope, this inheritance that cannot perish, that cannot fade, that is kept for us. So notice 
Notice what we've been brought out of and brought into. Not forgotten, but chosen. Not darkness, but light. Not judged, but recipients of mercy. Not peasants, but royalty. Not slaves, but free. Not dead, but made alive and born again. Not hopeless, but heirs to this unchanging inheritance and future joy. Not strangers, but we are God's chosen people where we are in this strange way, what he says, his treasured possession. Out of futility and emptiness and into life itself. But in order for this transfer to happen, a price had to be paid, which brings us to our second point, and that's the cost. So over the past weeks, we have focused a lot on the power of the cross to accomplish something. And so even this morning, the the main thing I want to highlight is not as much the deliverance as much as this price that was paid and the cost of bringing us out of this and into this. So in the mid-1800s, Henry David Thoreau, he spent two years in somewhat solitude outside of a pond, reflecting on the meaning of life and what really matters. And part of his getting away was his growing suspicion that we were missing out on something and all the advancements and all of the modern technology and all of the growth that there's something that humanity had lost. And so he tried to get away. And as he considers work, relationships, leisure, as he considers time and nature, and all of the things that we give our lives to day after day after day. He said this, he said, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. The cost of something is the amount of life you will give in order to have that thing. This principle is at work everywhere from your work and what you give yourself to your family and your relationships of what you give yourself to your time, your money, your resources. This morning, you are paying a price to be here this morning together. And I hope it's a I hope it is a good result of you being here. But that's some of what he's talking about of the cost is the amount of life that will be exchanged for it. To put it in the context of our passage this morning, the cost of our redemption is the amount of life that God himself is willing to exchange for. The cost of our redemption is the amount of life that God himself, of God's life, that he is willing to give in exchange for our redemption. The price he is willing to pay for our ransom. We often assess things in dollars, cents, gold, silver. The same thing was true with them. Those things have purchasing power, but the ransom that's being talked about, the payment here is of something of such much greater value. Verse 18 and 19, you were ransomed or redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, this lamb without blemish 
or defect. That language of lamb, blemish, defect, perfect, spotless is sacrificial language. It is this language of God offering up something and of Jesus offering up something in order to accomplish our deliverance. In other words, Jesus' sacrificial death was the cost of our deliverance. So right now we're in the middle of March, which means March Madness. So there's a lot of talk about basketball and about brackets and how it normally goes as you fill out this bracket with these 64 teams and who you think is going to win. You pay $5 to a small group of people. If you lose, you lose $5. If you win, you may win $50. Now, that might be fun, but that's not what anybody would call breaking the bank. That is small risk. And small reward. And this is, this is going to be hard to get our heads around. But when it, when it comes to the cost of our redemption, God is going all in for us. God in some way is breaking the bank saying, I am not just putting a little bit out there. This is our redemption is not God's side hustle. That he's got all these other big things going on and then he's got this plan for humanity. Our redemption is God putting all of his chips in the middle saying, this is how far I am going to go to make you mine again. And we've got to remember that this work, this price that's paid is one that is paid by the Father and the Son and the Spirit together. So think about the Son, the, the mental and emotional pain. The pain of life up to just that point, but then Him walking up to and walking through the valley of death and damnation. The mental and emotional pain. Think of the physical pain. The beating, the cross, what's seen as the most shameful and painful way to die. And then there's this spiritual pain of somehow the full weight of our sin landing on him and completely crushing him. As Peter's going to say later, he himself bore our sins in his body. There is a reason why the night before, as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. There's a reason why he is sweating and there is blood mixed in coming out. The level of angst, the level of trepidation. There's a reason why he's pleading with his father all alone saying, if there is another way, if there's any other way, let's do that. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There is a heavy price that Jesus pays for you. And then think about the father. The father is not just some bystander, often a distant, detached from everything that's happening or cold hearted in any way. One of the more surprising parts of being a parent that I've experienced is how much I feel the emotions and experiences of my own children. So their joys 
somehow become my joys. Their hurts become my hurts. Their fears become my fears. And in ways that they do not understand, things they go through, I feel in my soul and even when in my body. It's easy for us to forget that on the cross, there is a father who is watching as his only son, beloved from all eternity, is experiencing hell itself. A father who feels that with him. And then there is a spirit who is at work in the midst of this as well. And when we put that together, what we see is is God together is not stoic or indifferent. But there is a price that is being paid. And if, if Thoreau is right, that the cost of a thing is the amount of life which is required to be exchanged for it, then the cost of our redemption was enormous. And this cost is one that, that we are wanting to get in our hearts and in our heads because it, it's one that changes how we live. And this, this is where we'll bring to our final point. How, what does it mean for us? So there's, there's this movement that is beautiful, that is powerful, that is life-giving. And there is this price that was paid that to us is incredible. So what does it mean for us? And there, there's many things that we could say here, but I want to highlight one thing that our text brings out. And it, and it, it focuses on this word, holy. Verse 14, don't be conformed to these passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't go back to these old, futile ways. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's a quote from Leviticus. To be holy means to be set apart. To be holy means you have been set apart as different. It means you have been set apart for a purpose. It means that you no longer belong to yourself, but you belong to another. In other words, if we have been purchased and paid for with such a high price, then it means we are no longer our own, but we belong to the one who paid such a high price for us. As 21st century Americans, this can be very difficult for us because as much as we love all these benefits and all the good things that God does for us, we push back on the responsibilities. We want still to be able to do whatever we want, say whatever we want, think whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. I think about the old poem Invictus that ends with these words, I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. That's someone saying my life is my own to do with it what I please. Now, I want you to to take the end of that poem and compare it with this old statement of faith in the 1600s, the Heidelberg Catechism. It's the first question answer when they're trying to describe the essence of our faith. Here's here's the first question, the first answer. What's your only comfort in life and in death? What matters most? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of everlasting life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. If there can only be one master of my fate, if there can only be one captain of my soul, I want it to be this person who says, not a hair from your head will fall apart from my goodwill. I will work all things for your salvation, your rescue. I have paid an incredibly high price that you might belong to me. And the work that I began, I will complete it. Belonging to Jesus means that we are in very good hands. And we are to live as people who belong to Him. And I'll close with this. Living as people who belong to Him, we'll see in verse 13, it means being people who are sober-minded and ready for action and full of hope with this future inheritance in Jesus' return. Sober-minded. So I don't talk about it much up front, but Brent's death is still very hard for me. So I still think about him almost every day. I still read his book regularly of his blog posts. I look at old pictures. I want to talk with him again. I want my friend back. His, his death had a very and still has a very sobering effect on me. It was a very hard lesson. It still is on that life is precious. So valuable. Life is also fleeting. And what we do with our lives here and now matters enormously. I remember back years ago, we, he, so he loved Georgia football. And he would somehow find a way to make it to all the big games. And I remember it was after one of the big SEC championships, one of the number of them that we lost, <laughs> that I told him, I said, you can't go to any more of these games because every time you show up, we lose. Um, he didn't take me seriously, so it comes to national championship. This is our chance. We've been waiting for this for uh, 40 years. And he decides to go, and you know how it ended. And, and I think about that. I think about those games. I think about things like football. And I, I would trade every national championship just to have my friend back. Um, that's, that's, a cha- that's a sobering thought. This, this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. This doesn't matter as much. This matters. This is life. And Peter's saying, you have been brought from this to this, and it cost an incredible amount to bring you there. 
I want you to live as sober people. The days you have are fleeting. And I want you to live in light of what really matters. When I think about Brent, what mattered to him, I have a picture frame in my room uh, with a quote from him with his own words saying what matters. He says, my legacy is pretty simple. It's Christ. Verse 17 talks about us being exiles, which means this is not our home. We are journeying together in our calling as holy people, as those who are set apart, as those who don't belong to ourselves, but belong to another. Our calling is to do as much good as we can for the most we can for as long as we are here. But it's only when we grasp the redeeming power of the cross and the price that was paid that we will be able to love him more than anything and live for him in everything. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess um, how small our awareness is of what you have done. Uh, We are content with some very small things in this world. And it's so easy for us to miss this bigger picture of a deliverance that has come at an incredible price. And I ask simply that you would open up our hearts and our minds to see this, that we would be moved in new ways, that you would help us to be sober minded, help us to see life clearly and to discern what matters and what doesn't. And to be prepared for action, to be ready to live, to fight, to pray, to love, to give, to pursue, to be a part of this beautiful work you are doing. And to be a people of hope who set our hope fully on this grace that will be revealed when Jesus returns in glory. Help us to be, as Peter says, people who proclaim your excellencies, the one who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light at great price to yourself. Make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.